in our church, uh, we have um, the office of deacons. And we, we get that from the New Testament because in the early church, as they began, and all the excitement began in the early church and as they were growing and so forth, uh, one of the things they discovered, there was two things going on in the early church. One, there was a, a concentration of people witnessing for Christ and others coming to know Christ. And that was, you know, powerful and things were happening. Uh, but there was also the emphasis on ministry that was going on in terms of taking care of needs. Uh, so the early church, for example, in Jerusalem had identified the fact that there were a lot of needs in the community. And they were doing a good job of trying to reach into those needs particularly amongst the widows, because in that day and time, there wasn't like a catch to catch widows who had needs. And so that was one of the poorest of the poor would be widows. And so uh, they were ministering to the needs of people. They were loving and being the family of God. Uh, But there became a dispute or an argument or complaining in the church. That never happens in a church, right? Um, But there was a little bit of complaining going on in the church because some needs were being met more than others. And they said, well, we got to, you know, do something about this. And we can't ask the elders or the pastors or whatever to, to focus on that because we want them to focus on prayer and preaching of the word of God so that they, they could focus on that. And so they said, we need another kind of office in the church different than them. And so they created deacons. And deacons were created to, uh, they also had a lot of high qualifications for that. We'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, But these were to be men in the church who who their focus was ministry within the church, that they were to focus on meeting needs and and helping people within the church and trying to take care of some of those things. And so they appointed, Acts chapter 6, seven deacons in the early church. Now today we're going to look particularly at one of those deacons as we get into the message uh, because it's the one we know the most about. It's Stephen. And so we're going to hear a little bit about him in the context of this, but this morning Uh, We are in the process, uh, we have deacons in our church that are serving right now, our active deacons. Uh, So for just a moment, uh, would our active deacons please stand up who are currently active? Would you stand if you're currently an active deacon? So you can see these are, uh, they go forward many times, they'll take our offering, uh, but they're servants of the church. So in honor of them, would you just kind of recognize their leadership and their servanthood within the church? They wouldn't want this at all, but y'all go ahead and be seated. Thank you very much. So these are our serving deacons right now today. We have the opportunity to bring on two uh, new deacons. Now, in this process, it is kind of a thing where we as a church, how this happens is we elect them. In other words, they are recommended. At some point, we ask for recommendations from the church body, and uh, we contact those, and we kind of go through this process uh, that's been going on for quite a while. In fact, uh, these two men who we will be bringing in front of you today uh, they served as yokemen in the past year, meaning uh, they went alongside of the deacons, and they went to deacons' meetings and, and different things throughout the year. Uh, and then there's an assessment time where they're assessing whether the Lord's really calling them to do this. And then there's also the assessment of the deacons as they interview candidates and go through and make sure they meet the qualifications. The, the Bible gives us some very specific qualifications of what it means to be a deacon and what we're to look for. Uh, Timothy gives us, uh, Paul does in 1 Timothy, uh, gives us some instruction here. And so we go through this process to determine if this is really God's will as a candidate for deacon in our church. Now, uh, these two men and their wives uh, have come through that process. And uh, this morning we are presenting them to the church for ordination. Now, 
how we conclude that and how they actually become deacons is we do what the scripture says, and that is we put our hands upon them and we pray for them. We lay our hands on them and pray for them because that's what scripture taught us to do. And so we're going to do that this morning a little bit later. And so I want to introduce to you uh, our deacon candidates this morning. I'm going to ask that the other deacons who are moving the chairs go ahead and pull the chairs to over here so that we're ready to do that. I'm going to announce them so that you'll know who they are. Uh, they're going to sit over here because in, in a while we're going to participate in that. Uh, the deacons will come and pray first. Later the congregation will have an opportunity to lay hands on them as well and pray for them. And uh, to well, the significance of that, I'll talk a little bit about this in a moment, is that we believe that when a person enters that position, the body of Christ affirms that, and then God affirms that by equipping them in the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't think at all that anybody can do this of their own. It is God's power in them that can do this. And so we are honoring that by doing what Scripture says, and we believe God will anoint them to that purpose. We don't think anybody can do this. Hey, turn them where they're facing this way, though. Go ahead and turn them. They're facing the stage. I don't want to face the audience at this point. Yeah, there you go. Like that. All right. Our first one is Paul and Martha Chopin. Paul and Martha, if you'll come and sit here up in the front. Uh, this is Paul and Martha. Uh, they've been, obviously, uh, a long-time members of our church and participated in all of our ministries. And uh, they have gone through this process, and we are ready to bring them on. And um, then we have uh, Scotty and Kim Davis, also uh, longtime members of our church, whom God has led to this point. And so in recognition of their willingness to serve and to be servants, would you please show them a little bit of appreciation this morning? Now, we're in a series on the persecuted church. And when this whole thing came up about deacons and doing during this time, I thought, well, how do we integrate these two things together? And then I got to thinking, you know, the very first deacon we ever know about is named Stephen. You, you say, well, I thought you said there were seven deacons. Yes, but the very first name mentioned is... Stephen. The very first name in Scripture of a deacon is Stephen, and he's the one that we know the most about. So we can look at Stephen, and we can look at what happened in Acts chapter 6, and then Acts chapter 7, and even into Acts chapter 8, and we can see a picture of what a deacon is. And we can realize how God used this man the very first deacon we even know about in a very powerful way. Because what we see about this man is he was an incredible witness for Jesus Christ. An incredible witness. And as a result of his witness, he becomes the very first martyr that we know about. The very first. It wasn't a pastor. It wasn't an elder. It was a deacon. It was the first one to give their lives for the gospel of Christ that we know about. And so we're going to look at his story and we're going to learn some things about what it means to be a deacon, what God is calling a deacon to be, and how important this is. And this is the calling for all of us. The Bible says this is a noble calling. It should be something we all aspire to do in our lives. God only sets aside certain ones to have that, that title of the deacon. But nevertheless, the very things that deacons represent are the things that all of us should represent in our lives. 
they should be models of what it is to follow Christ and to serve His church and to be a witness. And so we're going to look at this. Now, understand that the word martyr itself literally means witness. And the reason that there's such a similarity here is because they looked at, and if you go through the New Testament as you read and as you get into and see the value of martyrs, is that over from the very beginning all the way down that, we value, we see our martyrs as being a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that. We honor our martyrs. We realize that they gave their lives for the cause of Christ. And they are ultimately honoring the greatest martyr of all, and that is Jesus himself. Because he dies on a cross for our sins. And so for the early church, it was very much an honor to be a martyr. And so you get a sense of that even as you go through. I mean, it was hard. It was. I'm not saying they were running to martyrdom. I, w- I was reading a story the other day, a very interesting thing, because uh, uh, Billy Graham passed away. And certainly Billy Graham has been instrumental in in. in millions, perhaps, in hearing the gospel around the world. Uh, but he had a very godly wife. I don't know if you know much about her, uh, but her name was Ruth. And she um, died, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago or something like that. She preceded him in death. Uh, but she was a very, behind every, by the way, behind every godly man, there is a great godly woman, all right? <laughs> and, you know, I, I promise you, these men would not be sitting here if it weren't for the wives sitting by them. And there's no different with Billy Graham. He had a tremendous wife. She was raised in the mission fields. In fact, her, her parents, and her, she grew up in China. And so they were serving the Lord in China. And so uh, being missionaries, there was a culture of honoring martyrs. In fact, as a little girl, there's a story told about Ruth as she was growing up that she would pray uh, in front of her family and everything because there was such this value of those who gave their lives for Christ. She would pray that she would be a martyr for Christ. She literally prayed that bandits would come and get her and behead her for the cause of Christ. And her sister would pray, God, don't listen to the prayers of my sister. We're like praying against each other. But it just shows you the value. You know, she was raised with such, with such a value that it would be an honor to give your life for the cause of Christ. And she grew up that way, thinking those kind of things. Now, we don't, you know, we're not saying that we should run and try to be martyrs. I don't think anybody's saying that. But to recognize that it's an honorable thing to give our lives to Christ and to serve Him and to go out, and if that's the Lord's will. And so as we look at the persecuted church, that's what we're seeing. As we look at deacons, we're seeing that they understood that when they signed up for these things. I want to take us to Acts chapter 6. And we can't read the whole story here. I just want to kind of center in the story. I'll I'll fill you in some details as we go. But in Acts chapter 6, we find kind of the heart of the story. Uh, There's already been this appointment of deacons, and they were uh, designed to serve the church because they had needs. And and there's nothing said there about the fact that they're to go out and witness or to preach or whatever. But we we get the feeling that um, as Stephen is serving the church, that, that somehow he gets to a place where he um, is just a, just this great witness for the Lord. And this is what's going to lead to his martyrdom is his witness. It's not his service, but his witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pick it up here, and beginning in uh, chapter 6, verse 8, it says, In Stephen, uh, which, by the way, his name means victor's crown. In other words, uh, you can picture when his life is done, uh, the Lord saying, which I hope he says to all of us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. 
Let me give you a victor's crown for what you've got. We picture that about Stephen himself. But his name means that. It says he is full of grace and power. Notice that, grace and power. He was doing great wonders and signs among the people. God was using him in an extraordinary way. Um, in other words, he wasn't just like over here and, and no, nobody ever knew about him. Some, he was growing and God was doing some things through him. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of uh, Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those of Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. There's some kind of argument here. I'll, I'll cover that here in just a moment. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. These would be uh, the Jewish people. Uh, in other words, non-believers. They were stirring them up. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases. Notice this. He never ceases to speak words. In other words, we cannot get him to shut up. He just keeps talking. Now what is he talking about? What is it what is he what is going that he can't give up? He never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth. So who is he talking about all the time? Jesus. That this Jesus of Nazareth We'll destroy this place and we'll change the customs that Moses delivered to us. They're kind of twisting his words, and we'll talk about them. And gazing at him, all who sat on the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Okay, and I don't know any of our deacons that have the face of an angel. Just saying. <laughs> Maybe they're wives, right? But, but not them. But it says when they looked at him, it, it, he had the face of an angel. There was something about him. It just was undeniable that he was in God and that there was something powerful in him. What, what is it about this man? Let's pray. Let's kind of sum this up in some thoughts. Father God, we just thank you for this example of Stephen. We thank you for what it means to be a deacon. And I just pray, God, that as we, as we explore this and as we talk about it, God, that you would just uh, keep us on track, help us understand what it means, help us understand how it applies to our lives. Help us to, um, to agree with it, to have faith in it. Help my words to stay true to you. And Lord, may all that honors you and its blessing, may it sink deep within our hearts and minds. And may you touch us, change us, and transform us. We pray for these candidates before us, for them and their wives. We ask, Lord, that you would anoint them to your purpose. And Lord, that you would use Stephen as an example to them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, if you're looking at your notes... I want to suggest to you a couple things about Stephen and about us in general and deacons um, and as our candidates are here to, to think about some of the things we're talking about here. Number one, if you're in your notes, I want you to see that he was a courageous man, but his courage came from God. What made Stephen so courageous? We're going to look, as we look at the story, we see a courageous man, a man who stood up and he knew he was probably going to face opposition, but he wanted to tell them about Jesus. And so he continues to tell them. He goes to places where people do not believe in Jesus, and he tells them about Jesus. And as a result of that, he ends up receiving persecution. Ultimately, he will die for his testimony. But what gave him the courage? You say, I couldn't have the courage to do that. I want to suggest to you this morning that it was God who gave him that courage. 
It was God who gave him that courage. We don't know. I look at things and I read stories sometimes about the persecuted church and I think, I can't even, I couldn't do that. And you're right and I'm right when we say that because it takes the power of God to be that kind of person. And so what we notice about him is several things that the Word of God tells us. Number one, under that, first of all, notice that he was full of the Holy Spirit. In fact, that was one of the requirements that they looked at when they said, who are we going to choose to be deacons in our church? They looked for men who were full of the Holy Spirit of God. They said, let's find some men who have the Spirit of God in them that give evidence of the Spirit of God in them. Because you say, well, oh, Pastor, you've already told us before that all believers have this. Yes, we all do. But some of us are not living by the Spirit of God. Some of us are quenching the Spirit of God. We're looking for men who are living by the Spirit of God. And it's going to be evident in their lives. They said, let's find men of good repute. What did they mean? Let's look for men in our church who give evidence that they are walking by the Spirit of God. We're not looking for perfect men. We're looking for men whose lives are being transformed. You say, how can my life be any different? How can I have courage? How can I have power in my life? By the power of the Holy Spirit of God. And so what they're looking for is men who demonstrate this. And so we can look at Scripture and we can talk about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the attributes of the Holy Spirit. And he says you look for men who demonstrate these things. If they don't demonstrate these things, yes, they might have the Spirit of God because they're believing, but they're not walking by the Spirit of God. In fact, Galatians chapter 5, verse 25 says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. What is he saying? That we as believers have to learn to follow the Spirit of God in our lives and let the power of God come over us. And it's a learning process. It doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't just happen in a moment. What we are looking for in a man of God and a woman of God is someone who we see that over time these attributes of the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, are becoming more and more evident in their lives. We should be able to say of them, we can see the transformation that God has made in their lives as they've sold their lives to Jesus Christ, as they're learning to walk in that day in and day out and be obedient to the Spirit of God. And we could honestly say of Stephen that he had, and it demonstrated that he walked in the Spirit of God. He was in the fullness of the Spirit of God. And when they brought him on as a deacon, they said, well, you know, here's a man who demonstrates that. In fact, as they argued with him, it showed in that. You see, when he had arguments and people were coming at him and saying, well, what about this? What about this? He argued not in his own strength. He argued in the power of the Spirit of God. That's why they couldn't answer him. It's why when they brought him before the council, they said his face looked like an angel. Because they saw the Spirit of God in his life. This is key to who he is. This is how we become more of what God wants us to be, by the power of the Spirit of God. Look in your notes there. Just wrote a little thing. The main thing for us is to daily walk, daily walk in submission to and dependence on the Spirit of God. I can't do it. You can't do it. But by the power of God's Spirit, I can do all things through Christ. Amen, church? I can do all things through Christ. And so I'm looking to the Spirit of God. And so I want you to know, deacon candidates, that you cannot do this. Only the Spirit of God. And if we didn't think you were being led by the Spirit of God, we would never put you in this position. 
But if you stop that, if you look somewhere else, if you try to think in your own strength, own power, own wisdom, that you can do this, you cannot. You must be led by the Spirit of God to do this. Number two, he was full of grace and wisdom, or wisdom and grace, I think my notes say. What do I mean? I mean, when they looked at these men, they saw that they had a certain wisdom in their life. Wisdom is the ability to apply the things of God into our lives, a supernatural kind of thing. It comes from the Holy Spirit, but, but it's evident in their grace, too. It talks about the grace that was in their lives. In other words, they understood the message of Christ, and they applied it to their lives. You know, the Bible says, Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. He said, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are buried. He says the cross is foolishness to everybody else. Nobody wants the cross. The whole idea, deny yourself, take up your cross, go for the cross. Nobody said, nobody, that's foolishness to the world. But to us, Paul says, that's the wisdom of God. And so we have a whole different economy in this, in this Christ thing. And as Christians, we believe something totally different than everybody else believes. What we believe is we are called to be like Christ, and Christ came to serve. And so we think that our job is to serve. Our job is to love. Our job is, our job is to wash feet. Our job is to give of our lives. Our job is to love our enemies. Our job is so different than every other religion, every other thing. We have a different way of seeing things. Because to us, the wisdom of God is Christ and the cross. And so we go by a whole different system. And so when they were looking for men, they didn't find great speakers. They didn't find educated and talented men. You know what they found? They found men full of grace. Men who understood that they were humbled by the grace of God and the foolishness of the cross and who understood that the mission of being a deacon is not to be a ruler, it is to be a servant. That when Jesus said the greatest in His kingdom is not the, the rule, but the one who serves the that what we value is not uh, leadership or those who are in charge. What we value is the one who serves. And who gives his life away as, as for others, as Christ gave his life away for us. And so if we think at all that deacons are supposed to be powerful and, and rulers and tell everybody what to do, that is totally the opposite. They're here to serve. They're here to love this body of Christ, and if God calls them elsewhere, to love that body of Christ, and to love and serve the body of Christ, and to minister. And even if no one knows their name, and they never stand up in front of anybody, that they would have served Christ by serving His body. That's what God called them to. And so they found men of grace. Men who demonstrated the wisdom of God, not the foolishness of men. You see, to be people full of wisdom, we must grow in our understanding of the cross of Christ, where human pride is humbled and God's grace is exalted. A person who understands and lives God's grace is seen in the cross, also becomes a person who shows grace to others. You see, what we love about the men that we would bring before you today is that they understand that they're unworthy. And when they see other people, they understand that they need grace. And that they need love and they need the gospel. And they are people of grace, not people... You know, Jesus... Uh, well, let me go to Stephen for a moment. Stephen demonstrated this. And how did he demonstrate this? Well, um, 
they accused him of false things and they tried to rile up because they didn't want to hear what he had to say. I'll, I'll come back to that in just a moment and explain a bit more. But they ultimately are going to kill him. And they, they get the opportunity to do so. So they drag him out and they stone him to death. And while he's being stoned to death, you know what Stephen had to say about them? He said, Lord, forgive them. He said, do not hold this uh, uh, sin against them. Here's a man who's so humbled by the grace of God that though they stone him, he loves them and asks that God would forgive them. That's a man of grace. That's a man who understands the grace of God and what it means. And you see, when we look at these voice of the martyrs and we look at all these examples, what do we see? We see men and women who love the Lord, and yet they are persecuted, they are hated, they are beaten, they are, 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 there's the lack of mercy shown to them, and yet in the midst of that, what do they do? They love. They forgive. They continue to serve Christ. You say, I couldn't do that. No, they, you can too, because if the Spirit of God is in you, you can do that. Because that's what God does. You see, here was a man full of the Spirit of God. As a result of that, he's full of the grace of God. And thirdly, he was full of faith. Now, what is faith? Faith is the, the knowledge or the belief that we have that God has got this, okay? That God is in control, that He is sovereign, it is a fundamental teaching of the Bible. It is a fundamental tenet of our Christianity that God is sovereign. You hear what I'm saying, church? What does it mean that He's sovereign? It means that there is nothing outside of His control. Nothing. Paul said it this way. He said in Ephesians chapter 1, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who worked all things according to the counsel of His will. What is he saying? Everything happens for the purpose of God. Everything. That's a fundamental belief. And so what we're saying is, is that we believe that though they hang Jesus on a tree and crucify Him, that God had a reason. And he did. My salvation and your salvation, amen? And when we embrace that theology, when we embrace this, this mystery, when we embrace Christ, what we are embracing is the idea that, that you and I, and we sign up in this and we become Christians and God has a destiny and a purpose for us, that we understand that there will be good and there will be bad. But in the midst of that, it is always going to be God's purpose that's going to be accomplished. And the early church understood that. They understood if I embrace Christ, that there will be good my way and there will be bad. That I might have to suffer for his namesake. That it might be me. Not every Christian in the early church was condemned. Not every Christian had to be a martyr, but many did. And we accept that as, as we come to Christ. We accept the good and the bad that this journey is going to hold. And we believe God is sovereign in all these things. He will accomplish His will. You see, God's mighty power in your notes there is shown in our lives when we patiently and joyfully endure trials. Not just when we are miraculously delivered from them. There are times when we hear stories where God miraculously delivers someone out of oppression or out of persecution. But there are other times when they're not. All of those things serve the purpose of God. And faith means that I understand that. 
But my faith is not in the circumstances. My faith is in God. And if He wills it and it's going to happen this way, I accept what will happen. But my job is to obey Him. And Stephen has opportunity here in the midst of this. Is this faithful? He's this deacon in the church. He's serving the church. But he can't help but speak about God everywhere he goes. He goes to the synagogues. He's speaking about God to people who are Jesus, about people who don't really believe in Jesus. They begin to question him. They begin to, he can see how this is turning. But he will not be quiet. Because he can't. And in his opinion and in his faith, he believes that whatever God brings of this, it's okay. Either way. You kill me, it's okay. If it, you don't kill me, it's okay. The will of God needs to be done in my life. And so he was a man of faith. Now quickly, what does that bring us to? Stephen's love of the Lord, the Holy Spirit in his life, the fact that he understood grace and wisdom, and the fact that he had faith in a mighty God who, yes, let his son die on a cross, but did it for a purpose knows that his life is the same way and he's come to accept Christ and so he can't help it. He's going to tell people about Jesus. So what does he do? He goes into the synagogues. Now now understand this. The early church really did this a lot. A lot of the early Christians we, we hear about, they came out of the Jewish background, okay? Because our, our whole story comes out of the Jewish background, right? We are the culmination of everything they believed, all right? The Old Testament. We are all those prophecies and all those things. And, and the problem is some saw it fulfilled in Christ and others said, no way. And so the Jewish people, a lot of them, denied Christ. And so they believe the Old Testament, but they just deny that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the promised one, that he's the one to come, that he's the line of David. They just don't see all that. And so they're not focused on that. And so here you have these new Jewish believers who now have a Jewish heritage, Old Testament heritage, and now they've come to know Christ. They see how it all fits together. And so what do they do? They, only, they, you know, they probably met in their homes, but you know what they did on the Sabbath? They went and worshipped in the synagogues with people who didn't agree with them. And when they would go to the synagogues, and what, what, what would he do? He would go to the synagogue with these other groups that are Jewish believers, and they're reading the Old Testament, and he would say, oh, by the way, that's about Jesus. By the way, that was fulfilled in Jesus. He's just telling about Jesus. And so as is right to do there. And so they you know, they have these conversations and these men get to speak. And so he's just telling about Jesus. Well, he will not stop talking about Jesus. And they begin to question him. And they can't, you know, the wisdom of God gives them enough that they can't, they can't seem to win in an argument with him. And so they're now getting a little bit upset about this. But his mission is clear. He is going to tell people about Jesus no matter what. He can't help it. It brings a bold witness to him. I, but what I want you to see is that bold witness came out of who he was. He couldn't help it. Because he was a man of the Spirit of God. Because he was walking in that. Because he had faith. That meant that he was now a bold, courageous Christian. He was a deacon on fire. And it wasn't enough for him. He's going to go out and he's going to help people come to know Christ. And I'm sure he did. We don't know how many came to Christ. We have no idea. But we know it was enough that it got the attention of the leadership. And now they want to get rid of this guy. And if they can't talk him out of it, they're going to do something else. You see, when we bear witness to Christ, when we are, that's our focus. When we understand that's our mission and our role, to tell people about Christ. And we start speaking. We are speaking to hearts that are blinded by Satan and hardened by sin. 
So while some will receive our message, others will not. And Scripture teaches us this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. So if they're blinded to it, then why should we tell them? Because Christ told us to tell them. It's a matter of obedience. We're to tell them anyway, whether they're blinded or not, whether they want to hear or not. Another place, uh, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, darkened in their understanding, talking about them, excluded from the life of God because the ignorance is in them because of the hardness of their heart. He says, look, our hearts are hard. There are people in the world today who are blinded by the enemy. There are people in the world who have hard hearts towards God. And you know, the interesting thing is, most of the time we find them to be the religious people. The religious people. You know, Jesus didn't have a hard time with people who were out in the world sinning with the prostitutes and tax collectors. Those people, he had a very, you know, he'd go out and he'd preach and they'd hear him gladly. But he would go to the religious leaders and they resisted his message. And the early church found the same thing. It wasn't opposition from the people as much as it was opposition from religious leaders. Because there's something in religion, folks, I want you to be very careful because I'm not talking about other religions. I'm talking about us, too. There's something within us that we get so proud of our religion that we don't realize that it's by the grace of God that we're saved. And the gospel comes along and tells us that, that all our religion is like filthy rags, that anything we do is nothing. It's by the grace and mercy of God. It's, and when the message comes, it's very humbling. And if we don't want to humble ourselves before the mighty grace of God and recognize that this is not about us. This is not about our religion. It's not that we're good people. It's not that you know we can mark up how many times we've been to church or that we got a title in a Baptist or Methodist or whatever, that it's not about those things. It is about a simple relationship with God through Jesus Christ, His Son, who died for our sins and covered everything. And our only righteousness, only goodness comes from Him. But when that message hits a religious person, they resist. The answer to today's world is not religion. It's a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And so when you have all these religious people who don't get that, their hearts are hard to that, and they immediately try to put it down. And see, where does the persecuted, why are we have a persecuted church? Why are Christians being persecuted? Because the religious people of the world don't want to humble themselves before Jesus. And when the gospel truly is shown and it becomes not, not, not the shallow gospel message, when the real gospel message is being presented, they want to stamp it out. And the enemy stirs them up to not only try to argue with them because they realize arguing with them isn't going to solve anything. Because the more they argue, the more they're confounded by the wisdom of God. And so they, they won't argue. They can't talk them out of it. So their only other option is to kill them. So why are Christians so hated around the world? Because we do bad things? No, we do the most loving things on the planet. They hate our message. Because it humbles all religions, including our churches. Because sometimes we're so caught up in religion, we don't have this humble relationship with God. 
so they hate. So whenever the message of Christ becomes real and evident, there's going to be opposition, folks. It's just going to happen. I mean, I, I, I love being popular, and I love it when everybody's like, you know, waving the palm branches, but let's be real. When it gets down to the foolishness of the cross, they're yelling, crucify. And that's what they do to our message, too. Now, we have an obligation still to go out with that message and tell them these things. And so finally, number three, which is what we already started talking about, the courage brings opposition. See, what happened to Stephen? If, if Stephen would have just been a good boy and stayed at church and done a bunch of good things, which is fun because that's how he, he, he learned. That's where he began. Everything would have been all right. But as soon as Stephen got out in the world and started telling people about Jesus, hmm. In other words, we don't mind you Christians as long as you stay in your church, right? But if you come out and tell us the gospel message, we're, we are not, mm, mm. that's where persecution begins. You meet all you want. You can praise, sing praise on it. But it begins there because that's how we get in the power of the Spirit. But then there ought to be this movement outward. And as it was outward in his life, opposition began to happen in his life because the true gospel was being presented through Stephen. And the opposition came. And when we bear witness to blind, hardened sinners, we should be prepared for opposition. Deacons, let me just tell you, if you sign up, now, if you sign up for the wrong reason to be a deacon, it doesn't matter. But if you sign up to be a deacon to really serve the body of Christ and to serve Christ, you're asking for opposition. You're asking for it. Because you don't think if you're going to step out and really, truly try to present the gospel and really, truly emulate the gospel in our lives, you don't think the enemy is going to go all out to destroy that? Absolutely he is. You're inviting the enemy to come against you. Now, if he gets you on his side early on, and you're just not really going to do this in your own strength, and you're just going to you know, be a typical, standard, average, ordinary deacon, he, then the devil's got you right where he wants you. But if you're going to be a deacon who says, I'm going to surrender to Christ, and I'm going to serve his church, and I want to be a witness for the gospel and the cross of Jesus Christ, the enemy's going to do everything he can. you got to be signing up for what you're signing up for. Can you imagine from then on out, uh, whenever they had deacon sign-ups at First Jerusalem Church? By the way, our deacons get killed. That's the first one. That's the kind of deacon the church of God needs. It's deacons like Stephen. Opposition came. He convicted these men, and apparently, you know, the enemy got in there and started going against that. They will they'll kill him. They will um, bring uh, accusations against him, which eventually leads to the fact they'll drag him outside of town. Uh, they will stone him to death. And by the way, and here's the mystery of God. You say, well, why does God allow some to die and others not to? This is, this, again, this is the sovereignty of God. We don't understand all that, how God works. And, you know, you hear missionaries, you hear stories about them, they barely get on the mission field, and they'll give their life. And you hear other missionaries who go in, and they, they lifelong journeys. You know, how does that work? How does, we don't know, but we know this. God's got a plan. And in this particular case, there was a man standing there while they killed Stephen, and his name was Saul. He would eventually become one of the greatest Christians who ever lived, the name of Paul. And the people who stoned him laid their coats at his feet. 
because he was one of the persons leading the charge to kill Christians. But God used that to touch his heart and he rode to Damascus and he changed his life and he became one of the greatest Christians who's ever lived. We don't understand the mystery of God, why some die and others don't. And, you know, but here's the deal. Whenever we make sacrifices for the cause of Christ, it is like that blood becomes birth for new people. Just like Christ did. And that's an amazing thing to see. God does not waste our blood. He does not waste our sorrow. He does not waste our tears for the cause of Christ. Ever. Don't be surprised if you encounter fierce opposition. Satan does not sit on the sidelines when someone like Stephen boldly proclaims the truth. Amen, church? Amen. This is not an easy road. God is giving us this opportunity to go and to be that. You don't have to be a deacon. You can step down if you want to. You don't have to stand up and, and, and proclaim Christ in the gospel because you, it, you don't have to. But you can. <laughs> but you can. And you can be one of those. Our business is to be faithful to his great commission and to leave the results in two quick stories and then uh, we'll wrap it up and we'll do our thing. Years ago, a Romanian pastor named Joseph Son ran away from the communist country because obviously it's against the law to be a Christian there and or to speak about Jesus to study theology in England. It was back in 1972. He was ready to go back home and he discussed his plans with his fellow students and they pointed out that if he went back to Romania where it's against the law to be a Christian he could be arrested even at the border. One student asked him, Joseph, what chance do you have of successfully implementing your plans? Joseph smiled and thought to himself, now this is typical Western thinking. He later wrote, chances of success? I never thought in those terms. My thinking was in terms of obedience. I knew what my king said. He said, go. And I had to say, yes, sir, I will go. Son turned the question around in his prayer time, and he asked God this question, what, if you, what, what do you say about success? And the Lord gave him this answer from Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. He said, I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves. And the Lord said to, to him, tell me, what, what chance does a sheep surrounded by wolves have of surviving for even five minutes, let alone of converting the wolves? Joseph, that's how I send you. Totally defenseless and without a reasonable hope of success. If you are willing to go like that, go. If you are not willing to be in that position, don't go. Wow. <laughs> I say that to you, two men. This morning I one of our deacons came up and told me a brief story, and it caught my attention, so I'll just share it with you real quick. They went skiing a little while back, and several new people got to go skiing, and so they, first day, got on the slopes, and uh, one of them was prepared to go at the top, never skied at all in his life, and uh, was there waiting, and they were trying to get some instructions and help each other get ready and kind of give out some pointers, and there was a little mishap, fell down, got back up kind of thing, and in the process of that, as, as he got back up, he accidentally put his skis parallel with each other and got just enough forward momentum to start. 
Well, if you don't know what to do, you're just going. Because if you continue to stand with parallel skis, you're going down the hill like a bullet. And uh, the funny part was is that, you know, he's never skied before, so he doesn't know what to do. He had no instructions on how to stop. He doesn't know what to do, so he's just going. Like, ah! He just takes off and he starts going. And there are people like, you know, it's not a big, you know, smaller hill. It's not a great town kind of thing because they put them on there. But nevertheless, there are people there. And so he, he's yelling out, you know, as a warning. He says, coming in hot! I love that. I think they made a t-shirt about it or something. Coming in hot! You know, like, we don't know what's going to happen, but we're coming! Goes down, you know, people are getting out of the way, barely missing people, and apparently gets to the bottom, and there was like a patch of grass or whatever, and hits the grass, face plants. Coming in hot! Folks, when we when we go with God, we're coming in hot! <laughs> Look out! <laughs> I have no idea where this is going. I probably shouldn't even be here, but I'm just doing what God told me to do. Yelling out, coming in hot, look out! You might want to stay away from me. <laughs> I pray that these two men and their wives will come in hot. They come in hot. Because they won't do it like the rest of us. They'll go ahead and go down the hill. 